We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. All right, welcome Gilmer Campus. It's such an honor to be here. As Todd has already said, my name is Shane. And, you know, every week I'm in multiple different churches, conferences, settings. And one thing I've come to realize is a good pastor is a gift from our great God. And the Lord has blessed this church with incredible pastors. Are you thankful for that? And I'll tell you, Pastor Todd, and Pastor Daniel, Pastor Matt are some of my favorite pastors in the nation. I'm not just saying that. I really mean that. God has been so good to this church. Are you glad to be here this morning? Gilbert, are you glad? Gilbert Campus, you glad? Spring Hill, you glad? In fact, why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you got to see me this morning. Why don't you tell them that? What a joy it is to be here. You know, uh, one thing I wanted to share because uh, part of the sermon will actually come from one of the chapters in the book is uh, here recently I worked on a new project with the publishers Penguin Random House and Waterbrook Multnomah to write a book called Nine Common Lies that Christians believe. And the idea, the concept of this book is this, there are some cultural cliches, some one-liners that we as the church, for lack of a better term, have adopted into our faith, baptized them, and made them a part of our vernacular, but they're not necessarily biblically true. Let me give you an example. How many of you ever heard this statement before? God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that statement before? Gilmer, have you ever heard that? God won't give you more than you can handle. How about this one? Follow your heart. We'll talk more about that one in a moment. What about this one? Believe in yourself. What about this one? When a loved one dies, God gains another angel. Listen, what if those are more than sentiments? What if they're actually lies that will hold you back in your faith? Because if you think about it, we often share those with people who are struggling or going through a difficult season, right? You don't say God won't give you more than you can handle to someone who's having the best day of their life. One thing we know is this, is what's going to get you through the dark nights of the soul is God's word and not some cultural cliche that's not even biblically true. Would you agree with that? So each chapter takes one of those cliches, and what does the Bible actually have to say about it and a better truth to move forward with that gives you hope and encouragement? And the response has been awesome. All glory to God. Uh, every major bookstore picked it up. Uh, it's been a number one bestseller on Amazon for a long time, uh, hundreds of churches have used it as a sermon series, a small group study. But please hear my heart in that and no way to bring attention to myself. God truly gets the glory in that because I want you to know I'm a moron. All right. Uh, your students have been with me this weekend. They know I, I'm a moron. Like I grew up in the country. So me and my friends, we used to time each other how long we could hold on to an electric fence without letting go. All right. <laughs> I don't have a lot of brain cells left. So God truly gets the glory, Gilmer. All right. Um, but we do have these books available, um, and we have a few left. They're almost so that we have a few left in the foyer uh, here at Spring Hill. When you leave, go to the left. I'll be out there. There's just a few left. Gilmer, uh, there may be some left. I don't know, but they're in the foyer if they're there. But if not, they can be found everywhere. Books are sold, and honestly, it's the cheapest on Amazon because they're taking over the world, right? 
Yeah, okay. All right, so let's jump in to the greatest book of all time, God's Holy Word. Do you have your copy of God's Word? I hope that you do. And turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is right after Deuteronomy chapter 5. Would you agree with that? Okay, good. All right, that's where it's at. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you know, uh, your church started a sermon series last week called Next Gen. And I listened to that pastor or that, that message from Pastor Todd, and it's an amazing message. I'm so glad there's a focus in this church on reaching our kids and reaching our grandkids and reaching the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the, the project that this church is diving into because it's absolutely necessary. But this morning is a message for all of us because adults, you can't give away something you don't have yourself. And I want us to see this morning from God's word what he would have to say to us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you're there, say, uh-huh. Look at this. The writer, Moses, shares this. He says, hear, O Israel. Now stop right there. That word hear is the Hebrew word. The original language of the, New, uh, the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shema. Turn to your neighbor and say shema. Tell him that. Now, you almost got to say it like you're coughing up something. Shema. Now, that word means hear. But over time, it actually became the title of this prayer. That this is like a prayer that people would say every day. They would quote the Shema, and then they would teach the Shema to their kids. In fact, it's known as the greatest commandment, what we're about to read. In fact, in Matthew 24, or Matthew 22, Gilmer, that uh, a lawyer goes to Jesus and he says, tell me the greatest commandment. And Jesus actually quotes this commandment we're about to read. And then he adds one saying, and there's another just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you agree sometimes it's easier to love God than your neighbor? Some of you are like, I love Jesus, but I want to smack my neighbor. Now, th that's a different sermon for a different day, all right? But I want you to see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Hear the Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes this morning. I want you to simply write this down. The greatest commandment points to the greatest God. Look at verse 5. This is the commandment that Jesus quoted. You shall, and you probably know this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, all right? And so here is the greatest commandment. Jesus says himself, but it points to somebody. The greatest commandment points to the greatest God. Look at verse 4 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And here's the good news. And there is only one God. See, there's a bunch of fake, false, dead gods. There's a bunch of lowercase g gods that will fight for our attention. We'll talk more about this in a moment. And you don't need to give them opportunity in your life. You don't have to participate in that nonsense. You don't have to give them any kind of attention. In fact, you know, as we talk about the next generation, um, you know, the next generation is often called the participation trophy generation. And before we dog the next generation, guess who gave them participation trophies? Here, in this, there are no participations. 
trophies for false, fake, dead gods. There is one God. He is the champion. He is our God. He is the one to follow. He is the one to worship. And you don't have to give participation trophies to all these other gods. See, that's what culture says today, right? All religions are the same. All are different paths that end up at the same place called God. No, there are no participation trophies for false, fake, dead gods. There is one God, and he is worthy of our worship. We are to know him, and we are to make him known. In fact, I want to ask this question to you. It's the same question I asked the students last night. And it's the question I want to ask is this. Why should we ever follow someone who can't do anything different than we can do all by ourselves? Let me ask that again. Why would we ever follow someone who can't do anything different than we can do all by ourselves? What I mean by that is this. Not too long ago, I read a statistic. And the statistic said this. One out of one dies. We're not getting out of that, right? So it means this, I can live, I can die, and I can stay dead all by myself. So why would I follow anyone who can't do anything different than I can do all by myself? Let me give you an example. Buddha, a Buddhism. He lived, he claimed to be somebody, he died, he was buried, he stayed what? I don't know about you, Spring Hill, I can do that all by myself. Why would I follow him? Let's take Muhammad Gilmer, the central figure of Islam. He lived, he claimed to be somebody, he died, he was buried, and he stayed what? Dead. I don't know about you. I can do that all by myself. Why would I follow him? Let's take Joseph Smith of Mormonism. He lived, he claimed to be somebody, he claimed that some angels in New York gave him some golden tablets. He was buried, he died, he was buried, he stayed dead. I don't know about you. I can do that all by myself. But Spring Hill, let me tell you about Jesus. Gilmer, let me tell you about Jesus. He wasn't just sent from God. He was God. And he proved he was God. And he died in our place paying for my sin and your sin. He was buried. And three days later, he did what Buddha did not do. He did what Muhammad did not do. He did what Joseph Smith of Mormonism did not do. Our Jesus busted out of the grave. He is the Lord God. He is one. Come on now. I'm preaching better than you're responding. Come on now. He is God. He is what? I don't know about you. I can't do that. I think I'll follow him. He is the one God worthy of worship. He is the one the next generation needs to know and hear about. That the greatest commandment points to the greatest God. Look at verse 6. And it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Number two, would you write this down? The need, we need the Spirit to lead the heart. We need the Spirit to lead our heart. Look at verse 6 again. And these words, meaning the words of God, from verse 5, I command you today shall be on your heart. Well, where are those words again? Look at verse 5 again. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so basically meaning this, you shall love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being. That is the reason you're here. You exist to know God and to worship him with every ounce of your being. And guess what? That's also the reason your kids exist. That's the reason your grandkids exist, to know God and to worship him with every ounce of our being. It means this. It's not our life, and it's not their life. 
Have you ever said this before? This is so culturally relevant. Have you ever said this before? It's my life. I'll do with it what I want. Isn't that what culture tells you? It's your life. Do with it what you want. Have you ever said that? Usually we said it when we were teenagers fighting with our mama, right? Right before we slam our bedroom door. We go, mama, it's my life. I'll do with it what I want. Uh, right? Listen, the first time my kids do that, that door's coming off the hinges, all right? They're like, what about their privacy? Privacy comes with a four-letter word, R-E-N-T. You want some privacy? You better pay some rent up in here, right? But is it really our life? It doesn't matter how old or how young or how young at heart you are today. It's not your life. Everybody take your right hand and hold it up. Put it in front of your mouth. Breathe. Adults, you do it too. All right, put it in front of your mouth. Breathe. You feel that breath? Go, I need a tic-tac. No, you feel that breath? Feel that breath? Let me ask you this. Gilmer, let me ask you this. If it's really your life, what do you have to do with that breath? The answer is nothing. It began the moment God said. It will end the moment God says. It's his breath. Give it back to him and praise. You are here to worship God with every ounce of your being. That's why you exist. And watch this. And until you realize that, until you live that out, you'll always feel like something's missing. It's like I told your students this weekend. Often the two greatest days in anyone's life is the day they were born and the day they realize why they were born. And we get to pass that on to the next generation. But in verse 6, watch this. Now let's get to the practical side. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Why does he point out the heart? Why does he point out that out of all of this, it says we're to love God with every ounce of our being. And then he says, hey, guard your heart with these words. Now why does he go after the heart? Because watch this. Our heart is often the one that leads us astray. Our heart is the one that also chases other gods. Our heart is the one that chases idols. Our heart is often the thing that gets in trouble. Hey, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The biggest problem we have is a heart problem. It doesn't matter what age you are. The biggest problem you have is a heart problem. And you go, well, what is our heart? Is it just that muscle in our chest that pumps blood? No, it's more than that. See, once again, so culturally relevant. What is often told to us? And then what is often especially told to the next generation? What? Follow your what? Heart. I have a whole chapter down, but follow your heart. We see it on t-shirts that have like glitter on it. We see it on coffee mugs. We see it on computer desktop screensaver with like roses in the background. Follow your heart. And we give that advice. You may, well, I've never said that. Have you ever said this? Trust your gut. What's your gut telling you? And you're like, well, my gut's telling me I had some bad Taco Bell. I don't know. I don't want to make a decision off that. And see, often we think the heart operates like this infallible GPS in our, in our chest, that it will never lead us astray, that we come to a, a fork in the road, and it's like the game of hot and cold. Remember that when we were kids? Remember we would like, hide our sibling's favorite toy and then make them go find it? And if they would get close, what would we say? You're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, hot, hot, hot. If they get further away, you're getting cold, cold, cold. We think our heart operates like this. But we need to understand what the heart is. See, the word heart right here in Deuteronomy 6 is the Hebrew word lev. And then in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, every time you see heart, it's the word cardia. It's where we get the term cardiologist from, which is a heart what? Doctor. Now, let me explain to you. Let me give you the definitions of what those words mean. When the Bible says heart, what the heart is, is this. It is the hub of our emotions, our desire producer, the center of our being, plain and simple, the heart represents the locus of our feelings, our emotions, and our desires. Basically this, when we say follow your heart, 
literally what we're saying is follow your emotions. Follow your feelings. And that's exactly what culture means when they say that, right? That that's what culture is saying today. Your feelings are the greatest good. Your emotions are the greatest good. In fact, if anyone ever hurts your feelings, then you need to cancel them out of your life. So our feelings are our greatest good. So follow your feelings, follow your emotions. Now, there's no one perfect in here. I'm the chief of sinners. But Spring Hill, Gilmer, how many of you agree that if you always follow your feelings and you always follow your emotions, you're going to follow your feelings and emotions right into a ditch? Anybody agree with that? Agree with that? Why? Because we got a heart problem. And you go, well, why do we have a heart problem? Well, to understand that, then you have to go back to the beginning of it all. If you get on Ancestry.com, we all end up at Adam and Eve. And they rebelled against the Holy God. And the moment they did, the power of sin entered them. And when the power of sin entered them, they became sinners separated from God. And it affected everything in them, their soul, their spirit, their heart. Now we got a heart problem. We have a heart that runs to sin naturally. We got a problem. How many of you would admit this morning, you go, Shane, there is something wrong with me. Anybody admit that? How many of you are sitting next to someone? There's definitely something wrong with that person. What is it? Sin problem. It's a heart problem. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet says this. I want you to see this on the screen. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. He says this. The heart should always be trusted and followed. Is that what it says? What does it say? The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So it'd be like this. All right. So my wife is here this morning. Her name is Casey. We've been married 15 years. In fact, in the cafeteria. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Uh, in fact, uh, last service and this service, she is in the cafeteria. She was with the Gilmer campus yesterday speaking on adoption and foster care. Uh, we have five kiddos that are 13 and under. That is a prayer request, all right? Uh, two are biological daughters. We have three through adoption. Our oldest daughter is 13. She's in eighth grade. You're talking about constant need of prayer. What if she came to me one day and I said, hey, baby girl, listen. Hey, there's somebody I want you to always follow. There's someone I want you to always listen to. There's someone I want you to always trust. Whatever they say, do it. Oh, and let me describe that person to you. Uh, they're deceitful above all things. They're uh, desperately sick, and you'll never understand them. Would that be loving advice from a father? But isn't that kind of what we say when we're saying, I'm going to trust my heart? Follow your heart, trust your God. Isn't that kind of what we're saying? And, and then we all do dumb things. Sometimes our heart leads us to do dumb things. Would you agree with that? Would you, anybody in here ever feel like you got a PhD in uh, stupidity? Anybody feel like that? Anybody feel like you got a doctor in dumb? Uh, can I give you some encouragement this morning? I, I pray you're not offended. I pray you're encouraged. Uh, I want to share another verse with you. It's a very famous verse. You've probably heard it a thousand times. You could probably quote it. It's Isaiah 53, verse 6. We'll see this on the screen. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and he's prophesying about Jesus in chapter 53. And so in Isaiah 53, verse 6, this is what he says. All we like, what, and you can probably fill the blank. All we like, sheep. Now, you're East Texas people. What do we know about sheep? They're not very smart, are they? Have you ever seen an episode of Animal Planet where they test the IQs of animals? Do you know one of the dumbest animals in the world is, a sh is sheep? Now, how many of you agree this is the word of God? Do you agree with that? How many of you believe this knows what it's talking about? Gilmer, you believe that? And what does the Bible call us? Sheep. Just let that sit in for a minute. I don't know about you. I'm not offended by that. I'm encouraged by that. It means God knows how dumb I can be. 
God knows the mistakes I make. That's why he is a rescuer and a saving God. In fact, let's all encourage one another with that. Would you turn to your neighbor one last time? Everybody, give them, I want you to turn to your neighbor. Everybody turn to your neighbor one last time. I want you to look them in the face. I want you to smile. And as kindly as you can, I want you to say this. It's okay. God knows how dumb you can be. Tell them that. Tell them. <laughs> Tell them. Now, watch this. This is good news. You're like, man, who invited this guy? This is good news. Look at this. All we like sheep have gone astray. You know what we do? We do dumb things. We go go astray. We kind of follow our own intuition. We follow. We do our own things. Look at this. We have turned everyone, that's me, that's you, everyone to his own way. Listen, you can put in all the things that culture says is valuable today. This is so culturally relevant. You can put in all the statements, right? Everyone follow your heart. Everyone believe in yourself. Everyone do your own thing. You do your thing. I do my thing. It's your life. Do what you want. Isn't it interesting? The very wisdom the world gives, the Bible says, is a result of stupidity. You know, there was a famous singer of many yesteryears by the name of Frank Sinatra. And he had a song, what? I did it what? My way. Listen, friends, that will be the anthem of hell. See, maybe you've never heard the gospel explained like this, but here is a beautiful, I think, picture of the gospel and beautiful explanation of the gospel. Look at this. And the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, meaning this. When we do our own things, saying, God, I don't need you. God, I'm going to do my own things. We create a lot of dumb decisions, and it's crazy. When we do our own thing and go our own way, iniquity is sure to follow. And yet Jesus takes that on. So you could almost say it like this. Like So I go, like, a picture of the gospel could be this. Think about it. That our God is so amazing. Our God is so powerful. Our God is so good that he is an expert at saving stupid people from themselves for the glory of our great God. Are you happy about that? Isn't that good news? Anybody identify with that? That he saves us? You know what else our heart does? It's create idols that rob God's worship. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning one God. Look at this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're to love him. Look at this. In these words, I command you today shall be on your heart, meaning this. You should always listen to these words because you know what else our heart does? Our heart also creates idols. You, you know, he's talking to a culture here that's full of idols. That's why he's saying the Lord God is one, meaning this, worship the one true God because you're worshiping all these other gods, meaning an idol is anything that takes your time, your attention, and it's a place of value in your life. An idol is something that can even be good, but it becomes important. And please hear me. When good things become the most important things, they become entrapping and enslaving things because they take the place of God in your life, and they will rob you. And if we're not careful, often adults, we will pass on our idols' worship to our kids. For example, we can look at that and go, man, okay, they had these statues in their house, and they had this fertility God and this, you know, harvest God. And if they wanted to get pregnant, they would make sacrifices, and they would worship this fertility statue. If they wanted a big harvest, they would worship this God of harvest. And we look at that and go, who would ever make 
idols out of man-made things? Who would ever worship things created by others? Who would ever make gods important like that in their life? Who would ever do that? That is so old and archaic. Who would ever worship or make things in their life that important that someone else created? I don't know. Who would do that? See, here's the deal is we worship idols too. They've just taken different forms. You know, you know one thing the iPhone or the smartphone does? It's proof positive we're not nearly as busy as we think we are. Think about how much time we spend on this. Think about how many social media posts we scroll through. Have you ever thought, what if I read one Bible verse for every social media post I read each day? How fast would you get through the Bible? See, we have idols. They just take different forms. And we tend to pass them on. What are some other idols we tend to make? What about this? Parents, make idols out of these things. And listen, I'm a father of an athlete, but they can't be the most important things. They can't be the most important things. Every year, as Pastor Todd said, I get to travel all over the nation. I speak to tens of thousands of young adults, college students, high school students, junior high students. And you know what I've never heard? I've never once heard this. I've never once heard a college student go, you know what? I really wish I would have played more Little League when I was smaller. Man, I really wish I would have been on more club teams. Not one time. You know what I hear thousands of times? And I wish my parents would have spent more time with me. I wish we would have spent more time around God's people. I wish they would have invested in my soul. You know, we also make idols out of our appearance. Sometimes we can be more concerned about how we appear on Instagram than we do in real life. And then I would confess my sin before the Lord. This is my favorite team. <laughs> they teach me a lot of patience and long-suffering, all right? <laughs> but what it, is it possible that if the wins and losses of our favorite team either make or ruin our day, have we invested too much? See, because one thing I think we forget is that our kids will also stand before King Jesus. Talk about next gen. Our grandkids will also stand before King Jesus. I think we realize that, but we don't think about our kids and our grandkids. See, one day they also will stand before King Jesus. And here's what I promise you. He will care little about their grades. He'll care little about their batting averages or their three-point percentages or their yards per carry or their popularity or their college transcripts or their class rank. The question is, how are we investing in the souls of our kids and grandkids? How are we investing in the souls of the next generation? Because that is the one thing that King Jesus cares about. How are we doing that? Because there's some next-gen realities that I need to share with you. So the students that are currently your kids and grandkids, the students that are currently teenagers or college students are known as Generation Z. How many of you have heard that before? Generation Z. Gilmer, have you heard it? Generation Z. So they're not millennials. Millennials have passed. They're Generation Z. And here's some things that we know about Generation Z. As they're old enough now, the oldest Generation Z are now in college. So we've gotten some data. I want you to listen to these realities. Less than 30% of Generation Z says religion is important to them. Please hear me. Not Christianity, just religion important. So if that be true, please hear me. This next generation is the least religious generation we've ever seen in U.S. history. Listen, the Bible Belt has busted with lostness. 
there's truly a post-Christian generation that's coming up that desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the irony of all of it is over 80% of Gen Z, listen to this, over 80% of Gen Z says living a self-fulfilled life is very important to them. So that's the threshold across is that God wants us all to live a fulfilled life. It just comes from someone outside of self. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must share it. And it's an endangered generation. I had your students do this this week. Raise their hand. Hey, tell me if you know somebody who struggles with depression or suicide or anxiety. They all raise their hand. Here's, listen to this reality. For the fourth year in a row, the average lifespan of Americans has declined. Wrap your mind around that. With the advances of technology, the advances of medicine, for the fourth year in a row, first time in U.S. history, for the fourth year in a row, the overall lifespan of Americans has declined. Listen to this. Primary reasons, suicide rates and drug overdose rates amongst Gen Z and millennials. Now is the time. Now is the time. Why? Because if you don't reach the next generation now, you may never reach them. I want to share you, I want to show you one more statistic. So not too long ago, uh, I did a poll on Twitter, and I asked this question. If you're a follower of Jesus, at what age did you surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior? I want you to think about that in your story. So I gave four um, answers here that you could possibly answer under the age of 13. Uh, in fact, let's do that in here. How many of you got saved under the age of 13? Raise your hand. Okay, well, look at that. Uh, between the ages of 13 or 18, how many of you got saved in your teenage years? Look at that. Uh, between the ages of 18 and 20, how many of you got saved in your young adult years? All right. And then but after the age of 30, how many of you got saved after the age of 30? Raise your hand. Uh, very, a few, right? All right, now look at this. If you add those together, wrap your mind around this. 77% of Christians surrender to Jesus before the age of 18. 77%, now wrap your mind around this, over 95% before the age of 30. It means this. If we do not reach the next generation right now, we may never reach them. Truly a lost generation. So I know that you're in a campaign of reaching the next generation, doing some building, some tooling, some equipping of the next generation ministries. Please hear me. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. Please, I want to encourage you to empower your pastors, your leaders, your young adult leaders, your student leaders, your children's leaders. Empower them to do whatever it takes to reach the next generation. Because by those statistics alone, they are on the front lines of missions and evangelism. So empower them, equip them, resource them to do whatever it takes to reach your kids and grandkids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can we all say amen on that? Would you agree with that? Now is the time. Now is the time to solve this heart problem. And you go, well, Shane, how do we solve a heart problem? They need the real God. And please hear me as we land this plane. They need the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of our agendas, the Jesus of the Bible. Let me give you an example about that. How many of you played with this when you were kids? Play-Doh? Anybody play with this? How many of you are adults, you still play with it? Okay, good. All right, there you go. You're my people. All right. Anybody weird like me, you enjoy the smell of Play-Doh? That's really weird, all right? Yeah. Now, here's the deal. Um, I borrowed this from our kids uh, without them knowing, so I guess that was more stealing, all right? Um, now, here's the deal why we love Play-Doh is because we have an imagination, and Play-Doh is shapeable, moldable, and bendable, and we can shape and mold 
Play-Doh to become what we want it to become, right? We're in, watch this, we're in control. And the moment Play-Doh becomes something we don't want it to, we can put it back in the container, put it back on the shelf, and it really doesn't affect our life. Or what do we do? We can roll it up and start over, right? See, we're in control. We get to shape and mold Play-Doh to be what it, it becomes. Now, here's the deal. It's culture has changed. See, there was a time when people used to say, you know, culture doesn't have a problem with God. They have a problem with Jesus. Remember how people used to say that? Well, it shifted a little more. Let me tell you what's taking place in the next generation. Is that culture really doesn't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the Bible. Now, what I mean by that is this. Be very careful. When often culture is talking about Jesus, they're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. They're talking about a Jesus they've created by their own imagination. It's like a Plato Jesus. Meaning this, it's a Jesus they have shaped and created to meet what they want him to be. But please hear me. We do not shape and mold Jesus to be what we want him to be. He shapes and molds us to be what he has called us to be. Jesus doesn't need to change. We do. He is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing, church, is we'll start shaping and molding Jesus, whom we want to be, and he becomes a Jesus of our agendas. Watch what I mean by that. We'll shape and say, man, I want my Jesus to care about what I care about. I want my Jesus to be passionate about what I'm passionate about. I want my Jesus to get angry about the things I get angry about. I want my Jesus to be a Republican. Amen. I want my Jesus to be a Democrat. I want my Jesus, watch this, so culturally relevant. I want my Jesus to tolerate the lifestyles I tolerate. And then watch this, if we're not careful... That's the Jesus whom we create. We plop him down. Watch. So relevant. That's the Jesus we sing to. That's the Jesus we tie to. That's the Jesus whom we serve. That's the Jesus whom we tell others about. That's the Jesus whom we raise our hands to. That's the Jesus whom we worship. And if that be the case, all we've done, watch this, we've been talking about idols. All we've done is create an idol named Jesus. And there are no power in idols. There's only power in the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Jesus found in the Word of God. He is the one who saves. He is the one who rescues. He is the one who transforms lives. And please, he must be the one we preach and proclaim. Not the Jesus of our agendas. The Jesus of the Word of God. He is our agenda. Now turn to Acts 1 and we'll land this plane. You know what it means when a preacher says he's almost done? Not much, but we really are almost done. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. So you have the power to do this. You go, man, this is really hard. You're right. It's beyond us. But we have a power greater than us. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Look at verse 8. So here's Jesus. Jesus has lived. He died on the cross. He's buried. He overcame the grave. He showed himself for 40 days. Right before he ascends into heaven, he gives a charge. Look at verse 8. He says, but you, turn to your neighbor and say, that means you. Tell him that one last time. That means you. But you will receive power. Hear me. We are not some weak we're not some weak, timid organization. We are a powerful church. 
The church is not a building. It's not an organization. It's a people with, watch this, the greatest power there is inside of them. When God saved you, he gave you his very best himself. You get God. You have the power of God in you. And yes, it may be impossible for you, but it is absolutely possible with the God that is inside of you. You have the power. Listen to this. And you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What he's saying is this. You have the power now to know me, and you have the power to make me known to those around you and to the next generations. You have the power, friends, inside of you to reach your kids and your grandkids and to pour into them. People ask all the time, they ask me because of my role, hey, what's the secret sauce? What's the secret sauce to reaching the next generation? Here's the deal. The secret sauce is this. There ain't no secret sauce. But there is a Holy Spirit. And if you have him, you have enough. And then it must be a priority, friends. It must be a priority. Look at verses 9 through 11. We'll be done. And when he, Jesus, said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, that's crazy. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. Those are angels. Verse 11, he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. So imagine you're there. Have you ever just stopped and like placed yourself kind of in those settings and go, man, what would that be like to be like firsthand in that scenario? I mean, imagine this. Like Jesus has died. You were hopeless. Like the disciples, they're like, what just happened? Then he overcame the grave. Then they were filled with hope. And then he says, I'm going to give you my spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power by which I did everything will now live in you. And they're like, yeah, Jesus. And he's like, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go tell the world about me. And you're going to go pass on this faith from generation to generation to generation. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, let's do it. Let's go. And then Jesus is like, I'm out. Can you imagine that? Like, you're right here, and he's like right there, and all of a sudden, he's just like, zoom, like a bottle rocket, zoom. Like, imagine you're there, and you're like, did y'all see that? He was right here, and now he's gone. He was there, and then a cloud. Like, Peter, did you see that? Bartholomew, did you see that? Hey, Bubba, did you see that? There should have been a disciple named Bubba, right? (laughs) Did you see that? And then... You know they must have been like mouths gaping open with flies flying in and out. How do we know that? Look at verse 9. I love it. Verse 9, it says this, and why, or verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, their mouths gaping open. They were mouth breathing there. Behold, two men, angels, stood beside them in white robes. And listen to what these angels says. He says, hey, men of Galilee. Hey, men. Look at me. Stop, stop staring at the sky. Hey, right here. Lock eyes. Hey, guys. Instead of just staring at the sky, instead of just sitting on your hands, instead of just coasting. See, a lot of times I think we just coast through life. My grandfather used to always say, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. Hey, guys, we can't just sit around. We can't just wag our finger at the world going, ah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Listen, if the world's going to hell in a handbasket, it's because the church is too comfortable going to heaven on padded pews. He goes, hey. Go, go tell the world. Because watch this, just like Jesus came the first time, he's coming again. Just like he came the first time, he's coming again. Did you realize that the Bible actually talks more about the second coming of Jesus than it does the first coming? 
But a lot of times we just get kind of scared to talk about it because it can be a little weird, right? Uh, because we've all seen the people on TV that's got like 15 button suits with comb-overs that start right here. And they're like, brother, if uh, you take all the letter A's in the book of Daniel and sister, you take all the letter B's in Matthew 24 and you take all the letter C's in Revelation, Jesus is coming back in three weeks. Ah, right? It's nonsense. Listen, the second coming of Jesus is not this Bible code to figure out. The second coming of Jesus is fuel for evangelism and missions. Meaning this, we must be urgent. If you're going to know Jesus, maybe you're putting it off, and you're going to know Jesus, it needs to happen now because you're not guaranteed tomorrow, you're not guaranteed the next breath. If you're going to pour into your children, it must happen now. You're going to pour into your grandkids, it must happen now. If there's somebody you're wanting to tell about Jesus, it must happen now. Because as long as we have breath in our lungs and the Lord tarries, we have the ability and the power to do that. However, when Jesus comes back, it's too late. Or you draw your last breath, it's too late. He is coming again. Do you believe that? And please hear me. The first time Jesus comes and the second time Jesus comes will look radically different. I want you to listen to this. First time Jesus came to earth, he came as a baby. When he comes back again, he will come back as a full-grown king. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came lying in a manger. When Jesus comes back again, he will come riding on a white horse. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came in weakness and meekness. When Jesus comes back again, he will come back in power and glory. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came to pay for the sins of the world. When Jesus comes back, he will do away with all sin. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a suffering servant. When Jesus comes back, he will come back as a conquering master. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a sacrificial lamb. When Jesus comes back, he will come back as a roaring lion. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came and suffered momentarily on the cross, paying for sin. When Jesus comes back, he will make sure that Satan will suffer for all eternity in a place called hell. Are you ready for that day? I love this one. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came and received a beating. When Jesus comes back to earth, he's coming to give a beating. The first time Jesus came to earth, very few people in a town called Bethlehem knew about it. Listen, when Jesus comes back, everyone on earth will know about it. The first time Jesus came to earth, a few wise men bowed before him. But when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess what we started with, that he is the Lord God and he is one and he is the only one worthy of our worship. That is King Jesus. That is King Jesus. So he's the only God worthy of your worship. Your heart will try to lead you astray. But what we need is a new heart. See, here's the good news. Is that we were born with a heart that chases after sin. But at salvation, we surrender to Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. And he gives us a new heart. Watch this. That chases after a Savior. That's how we worship the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because King Jesus has to give you a new heart. Listen, I'm not asking if you pray to prayer. You could do that every day and still be lost. I'm not asking you if you're a Baptist. Listen, I work for the Southern Baptist Convention, but please hear me. There will be enough Baptists in hell to start a lot of committees. Do you know Jesus? Does the Holy Spirit of God live inside of you? That's the answer. 
that you must answer with yes. And if you can't answer with that answer, yes, now's your time because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed your next breath. Now is the time. Because you know why? Especially if you're parents and grandparents and you're the older generation, you have an obligation towards the next generation. Watch this. And you can't give away something you don't have yourself. Do you know Jesus? Let us pray about it. With every head bowed, never I closed. Gilmer, with every head bowed, never I closed. If you're here this morning, you go, Shane, I don't know this Jesus, but I want to. Now's your time. Maybe you're here and this is the first time you've ever even heard this. Now's your time. Maybe you're here today and you go, Shane, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. I think he does, but I don't know. Let me ask you this. How can a God so big and a God so powerful speak all of creation into existence? How can a God so big and so powerful overcome the grave? How can that same big, powerful God live inside of little old me and you and we not know if he's there or not be radically saved by him? So maybe today you're not knowing is really you do know you don't belong to him, but today you can. Today you can. You're here because God said so. Maybe you're here today and like you heard others confess. So maybe you're just hanging out in the middle. Maybe you're like, you know what? I leave all this religious stuff to my wife and kids or I leave it to my parents or I leave it to my husband or I leave it to my friends or to Pastor Todd or Pastor Daniel. I'll leave it to them. I just hang out in the middle. Please hear me. There is no middle. Jesus said himself, you're either with me or against me. There is no middle. One day you will draw your last breath. You will stand before King Jesus to give an account like we talked about while going. Here's what I promise you. He will not say, great job. You hung out in the middle. You'll hear either well done, good and faithful servant. That's for those who have surrendered to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit. Or you'll hear the most nightmare statement of all time that will ring in your ears for all eternity separated from the goodness of God in a little place called when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you want to take that chance? So if you're here today and you say, Shane, I want this, Jesus. Shane, I need forgiveness. Shane, I, I, I want to live out the purpose of my life. I'm tired of being in the middle. I want to know for sure today if any of those apply to you, now's your time. I just want to invite you to confess with me. Listen, there's no magic in praying a prayer. What matters is that you believe today. Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess and believe that he is God and he overcame the grave, we'll be saved. I'm just asking us to trust the Bible. So if you're here today and you go, Shane, I want this Jesus. Or Shane, I need forgiveness. Or Shane, I want to know for sure. Or Shane, I've been hanging out in the middle, but I'm going all in. Now's your time. I just want to invite you to confess with me. Gilmer, I want you to invite, confess with me. Just say this. Just say, God, thank you for creating me but I've made a lot of mistakes. But I realize Jesus is bigger than my mistakes. I thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. I believe he is God. I believe he is alive. So God, would you save me? Forgive me of sin. Come live inside of me. Give me a new heart. I want to live for you. I want to share you with the others and the next generations. God, thank you for saving me. With every head bowed, never eye closed, I'm going to ask our encourager team to quietly come up. If you're here this morning and you said, Shane, I confess with you, listen, I'm not going to embarrass you or do anything like that. I just want to recognize who you are. If you confess with me or you know you need to, would you just look up and meet eyes with me real quick over in this section? Just look up, meet eyes with me. Is that you guys? Is that y'all? Keep looking up. Is that y'all? 
Is that y'all? Is that y'all? Awesome. Is that y'all over here? In fact, is that y'all? Awesome. Keep looking up at me. What about in this section over here? Is that y'all back there in the back? Is that y'all? Awesome. What about in this section over here? Is that y'all? Is that y'all? What about in this section over here? Is that y'all? Here's what I want you to do. With no one else looking around, if you're looking up at me or you know you need to, right where you are, you're not by yourself. I just want you to just stand up with no one else looking around. Would you just stand up? Just stand up. Yeah, just stand up. Just stand up. I see my brother. Just stand up over here. Stand up. Stand up. Over here. Others. Stand up. Over here. Over here. Stand up. Here's what I want you to do. If you're standing up right where you are, I want you to tell the person next to you, excuse me. And I want you to just come stand by somebody up here. All they're going to do is talk to you, pray with you, give you some next step. They're not going to ask you to say anything or do anything. If you're standing, I want you to just start making your way up to the front. Listen, people are coming. If you need to come, you come. Come on. How many of you would say this, Shane, I know without a doubt I'm a Christian, but I need to get this baptism thing right. I've never followed in baptism or I got baptized when I was little. I had no idea what I was doing. I need to get my baptism on the right side of my salvation because listen, any baptism that took place before getting saved was just you getting wet in church. So you need to get baptized. So if you're, we're not going to do it today, but we do want to talk to you about it. So if you need to get this baptism thing worked out, if that's you, would you look up at me? If that's you, I want you to just right where you are. I want you to just stand up and begin to make your way up as people are coming. Just tell the person, excuse, excuse me. People will talk to you about that baptism thing. All right, come on. Just come on. People are coming. Now for the rest of you. If you're here this morning and you just need prayer, maybe you're struggling with all these things we talked about. You just need prayer. I'll be here. Others be here. We'd love to pray with you. But other than that, here's what I wanted to do. We did in the last service. It was beautiful. If you're physically able and parents or grandparents, adults, if your kids or grandkids are in here right now, and just a moment, I want to pray and say, man, the moment I do, would you stand up and would you go grab your child or grandchild or come as a family or as a couple or as friends and just come up here to the stage and begin to pray and just thank God that he's the God of your family. Confess him as the God of your family and say, our family is going to be about Jesus. And our family is going to be about the real God. And our family is going to take a stand in this culture for Christ. If you are able to do that, and just while I'm praying, say amen. If you need to make a decision as others have come, you come. If you need prayer, you come. But other than that, would you grab your families and your kids, your grandkids, that family is a couple, friends, just come up to the stage, find a place to pray and say, as a family, we love Jesus. And Jesus, use our family for your glory. Would you do that? God, you're good. Good all the time. We thank you, mighty to save. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you are the real God. And we thank you that you have rescued us to know you and make you known. We pray this in the name above every name, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in these next moments, live transformation to take place. Thank you for those who have come. And then, God, I pray that everything will be about your name, your fame, your glory, because you deserve that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And the church of God said, amen. Can we stand and give the Lord a hand for what he's doing? And you come and you do what the Lord's called you to. Come on. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.